0: Welcome to Access Utah, this is Sherry Quinn. If you have a fear of snakes, now is the time to tune in. Today on the program, we hear from... My name
1: is Andrew Durso. I am a PhD student here at USU in the Department of Biology, um, working with Dr. Susanna French on the ecology of lizards and snakes. So Jefferson wrote this under a pseudonym when he was trying to make the argument that the 13 colonies should secede from... Great Britain from the British Empire. So this was written after the American Revolution, but before the Declaration of Independence was signed, so before the country was unified. I think I misspoke there. So it wasn't an argument for secession, but rather an argument for unification of all the different states, if that makes sense. So what he said was that is describing a rattlesnake that he saw one day, and he says, I recollected that her eye excelled in brightness, that of any other animal, that she has no eyelids. She may therefore be esteemed an emblem of vigilance. She never begins an attack, nor, once engaged, ever surrenders. She is therefore an emblem of magnanimity and true courage. As if anxious to prevent all pretensions of quarreling with her, the weapons with which nature has furnished her she conceals in the roof of her mouth, so that to those who are unacquainted with her she appears to be a most defenseless animal. And even when those weapons are shown and extended for her defense, they appear weak and contemptible, but their wounds, however small, are decisive and fatal. Conscious of this, she never wounds till she has generously given notice, even to her enemy, and cautioned him against the danger of treading on her." And I like the ending there, treading on her, because one of the early flags of the revolution was the Gadsden flag, which has a rattlesnake on it, and the words, don't tread on me, underneath, which you may have seen before.
0: Durso started a popular internet blog about reptiles, and today we hear about his research and passion that led to his interesting and entertaining internet website. I first asked him why he pursued a career in ecology, and especially snakes.
1: So I wonder that a lot myself, but um, well, I've always been interested in, in ecology, I was always interested in animals when I was young, and um, in particular, I really got interested in snakes in middle school when I was volunteering. Um, I grew up in North Carolina, so when I would volunteer at this, uh, the Museum of Natural Sciences in Raleigh, I would interact a lot with um, the curators that worked on reptiles there, and so they kind of ushered me into this field of of herpetology. So when I went to college, I started doing undergraduate research with snakes and I went on to get my master's doing research on snakes in Illinois. And then I came out here to do more research. Uh, ultimately, you know, I'd like to end up doing research and teaching as a career. So probably have a, a job as a professor somewhere at a, at a university or college.
0: What fascinates you about reptiles? That's a good question.
1: You know, with, for snakes in particular, I've always thought they were really beautiful and interesting because they can move with no legs and because they can eat things that are so much bigger than they are. And just because there's so many different kinds of them, there's over 3,000 different species of snakes around the world. And most of them we know very little about. Um, even here in the United States, there are hundreds of species and a lot of them are really, really poorly known, really poorly studied. So I just wanted to know more about them. I wanted to learn their secrets.
0: Were you ever afraid of them as a young boy?
1: You know, I have to say I've never really felt afraid of them. There's a lot of research on why people are so afraid of snakes because many people are very frightened of snakes. And I think I maybe was a little bit wary around them when I was very young because I observed adults around me that were frightened of them. And there is some research that shows that Mostly the way people become frightened of snakes is they watch older. It happens when they're children and they watch older people be frightened of snakes um, because they, they've actually shown that very young children, two years or younger, don't have any fear of snakes. In fact, they're not afraid of a lot of things that maybe they should be afraid of. You know, I think it's probably healthy to have some slight ca- caution around snakes because some of them are pretty dangerous, but the fear of snakes that people have is just way out of proportion to the actual risk that they pose.
0: Let's get right into your blog and the upcoming blog carnival.
1: Yeah, I'm excited for it. So I write this blog called Life is Short, But Snakes Are Long. And I started writing it about a year and a half ago. My friend, who also writes a blog, suggested that I do it. And I was really surprised at how well-received it has been. Um, So I try to write on there about once every two weeks about topics that I think are interesting in snake biology or herpetology um, and this Monday, December 9th, is going to be the first time that I've participated in what's called a blog carnival. So I had actually never heard of this before, but my friend Dave, who is a postdoc at Virginia Tech, also writes a, a wildlife blog. And he cooked up this idea and suggested that several of us that frequently write about reptiles uh, get together. And we all, we're all all going to put out posts on the same day about a similar topic so the topic um, is we're calling it Snakes at Your Service. We want to talk about what good are snakes, what kinds of roles do they play in the ecosystem, You know, what are their interactions with humans, with other animals, their prey, their predators, maybe some diseases, um, and get people thinking about why are they important and you know, get them a little bit of good PR, because unfortunately they suffer from a lot of bad PR.
0: For the past several years, I've heard that rattlesnake populations along the Wasatch Front are on the rise, some say because of drought. And people are encountering them more. Can you talk about that?
1: I've heard the same things that you have. That that you know, more people are being bitten by rattlesnakes in canyons around Salt Lake and Logan um, over the last couple of summers. Obviously, right now in December, nobody's being bitten by. Uh, rattlesnakes because they're all hibernating. But um, it's interesting. So I actually looked into this a little bit because I wanted to be able to respond to people when they said to me, well, rattlesnake bites are on the rise because, well, there's more rattlesnakes or they're more aggressive or their population is getting larger or something like that. And uh, honestly, Sherry, I don't think we know anything about the size of the rattlesnake population in Utah in any particular canyon. Um, My guess is that it's probably about the same as it's always been. And the reason that we're seeing more rattlesnake bites lately, if in fact that's a true claim, uh, is that there's more people. And there's more people out doing outdoor recreation. And so as a result, you have an increase in human-snake
0: interactions. What do you hope to accomplish with the blog? And what myth or myths do you hope to dispel?
1: Well, I hope, I hope it can assuage some fears. I mean, uh, one of the things that people are frightened about is, you know, they don't want to get bitten by a venomous snake. And if you actually look on my blog, I have an article that I put up there just recently. In fact, it's the the most recent one except for the one that's promoting the blog carnival on Monday called The Truth About Snakebite. And I spent a lot of time reading the literature and synthesizing data and statistics from hospitals, from global public health databases, from herpetologists on snake bite from venomous snakes, because I wanted to know, well, how dangerous is it really? And the truth is, you know, if you live in a developing country where there are lots of different species of venomous snakes, and there's lots of people that are out working in agricultural areas with their hands every day, all day long, and medical care is not very good then snake bite is pretty dangerous. But if you live here in the United States of America, snake bite is basically one of the least dangerous things that there is. And You are much more likely to get killed um, driving your car or from drowning or from a gunshot or from a dog bite or any number of other ludicrous situations that that might kill you than you are to get killed by a venomous snake. And part of the reason for that is... We have really good medical care, and so if a venomous snake does bite you, chances are very good that you're going to survive, because we've learned how to effectively treat it. And the other reason for that is that snakes really, really don't want to bite you. Um, you know, they their venom is used to kill their prey. So it's an adaptation. It's basically very strong saliva that they use to kill their prey. And if they waste it, essentially, from their perspective on you, then... They're going to not have anything to use to, to eat with over the next day or two. Uh, best case scenario for them, you know, you drop dead right in front of them. And even then, you're way too big for them to eat. So they'd rather not bite you if, if at all possible. And experiments have shown that.
0: When I was picking blackberries and I heard something under the blackberry bush. Ignored it. I just thought it was leaves rustling. And then I heard a hiss. And it lunged at me.
1: So you were picking blackberries from the bush and the snake rattled at you but you didn't realize what it was? And struck in your direction. Yeah I'm not, I'm not terribly surprised to hear it. I mean they will definitely do that if you stand near them or, or stand on them. I mean for all you know you, you could have stepped on it potentially uh, without noticing. <laughs> you know they're, they're very good at warning you. I mean what, what's been shown is that if you're a venomous snake I mean pretend you're a rattlesnake sitting under a blackberry bush in the sun. Maybe you're a female and you're pregnant and so you're trying to cook those babies and grow them up to a a good large size before winter comes and some large mammal comes up to you maybe it's a black bear or maybe it's a dog or maybe it's a human and you know what what's the first thing you're going to do well you're probably just going to sit still and do nothing in hopes that they're not going to notice you right and in fact as this was the case with your interaction you didn't notice the snake right you didn't see it it was exquisitely camouflaged they're really good at blending in with their surroundings and so Probably most snake-human interactions end that way, where the snake notices the human, it watches the human, the human doesn't notice it, and then the human walks away. Um, you know, if you get really close to them, or even step on them, then there's a good chance that they're going to warn you of their presence. So predominantly, you know, they may, they may try to escape from you first. They may give away their position by just trying to slither away, and if there's a nearby crevice or a hole that they know about that they can go down, then a lot of them are going to choose... That option, But if they can't get away, then they will stand their ground, they'll rattle at you, they may, you know, strike in your direction as a warning, but uh, the likelihood of one actually biting you, you, you almost have to pick it up in order for it to happen. So in experiments that have been done with cottonmouths in the eastern United States and with rattlesnakes, um, more than half the snakes that the experimenters stood near just slithered away less than one in five responded by striking. And that was only when the experimenters actually picked them up. So even if you purposefully went and picked up a rattlesnake that you saw, you've got a, an 80% chance that it's not going to try to bite you. I mean, I don't recommend doing this. I wouldn't recommend that any of your listeners actually try to replicate this experiment themselves. And in the experiment, they have this like ingenious false arm that they use to, pick it, to grasp the snake and to pick it up. Um, even beyond that, you know, even if you're so unfortunate as to pick up if you're an idiot or step on if you're just not paying very much attention a, a rattlesnake and it bites you, there's a pretty good chance that it's not going to inject any venom. Um, there have been studies that have shown that uh, when venomous snakes are striking their prey, they can very precisely meter the amount of venom that they're going to deliver. And they always inject venom when they're striking their prey. But when they're striking their predators, they actually don't inject any venom at all more often than not. Because like I said earlier, they'd rather save that for when they have a prey item. So there's a good chance that even if a snake bites you, you may not have been injected with any venom, and so you may be self. Of course, you won't know that at the time, and that's part of the reason that that's part of what the snake is counting on that you're not you're not sure whether it injected any venom or not but you're going to leave it alone and go seek help you know go to the hospital and seek treatment and it's going to get to keep its life which is its goal.
0: Can you talk about the anti-venom that has been made out of sheep and horse serum?
1: That's the old way of making it so anti-venom is just uh antibodies that break down snake venom and It's actually one of the oldest drugs. It's been being manufactured for over 100 years, which is really interesting. And so the the way that they used to make it is they would take a small amount of venom and they would inject it into a large animal, like a horse, or often it would also be a sheep. And then they would harvest the antibodies. So they would let the horse or the sheep immune system raise antibodies to the venom. And then they would harvest them and package them up. And then they can inject them into you when you go to the hospital. Of course, you have to know what kind of snake you're bitten by because the anti-venom is very specific to the type of venom that was used to create it. So if if I'm bitten by um, a Western Diamondback and they give me Sidewinder anti-venom, chances are it's not going to be as effective as if I got Western Diamondback anti-venom. And one of the big problems with creating anti-venom that way is that a lot of people, when they went to the hospital and got anti-venom, they actually had really bad allergic reactions because the antivenom was from a sheep or a horse, and the person's immune system said, you know, holy crap, now not only do I have snake venom all over the place, but I've got horse or sheep something, I've got horse or sheep antibodies in my system, and so I have to fight those off too. So the, the allergic reactions were actually more dangerous than the snake bites. And so what they've done to get around that is now there's synthetic antivenoms that are, that are made in labs, and they don't have uh, the horse or sheep antigens on them so our immune systems are a lot more likely to receive them well um, downside is of course they're a lot more expensive so hopefully you have insurance if you're bitten by a snake and you need treatment with antivenom.
0: What is your favorite snake uh, or do you have one
1: Oh gosh, that's a, that's a tough question. Well, um, I've been interested in snakes a long time and I've spent a lot of time out in the field looking for them, photographing them. Um, I've kept a few in captivity and I've done a lot of research on them as well. Um, I've never been bitten by a venomous snake, even though I've worked on some, because there are ways to, to interact with them safely where you know, you're very careful and you use tools and you don't ever let them come into contact with you where they could bite you. But uh, do I have a favorite? That is a good question. Well, actually, I've always really thought that the Gaboon Viper was a very beautiful snake. This is a really large viper from the rainforests of Western Africa. And it's it's just their pattern is so intricate and geometric and gorgeous. And my mom, actually, for my 21st birthday, she actually made me a quilt that is the Gaboon Viper pattern. It's on my bed right now because it's a very geometric pattern. So it's very good uh lends itself really well to quilting <laughs> you can actually see a picture of it on my blog i have an article about gaboon vipers up there at uh, several months old but you can check it out and, and see that
0: in fact just last week we featured the work of dr Odpeen from gabon africa who studied a parasitic worm that plagued her there during her childhood
1: so, so Gabon is the country with one O, and then the snake, for some reason, is Gaboon with two O's. I'm not sure why there's a difference in the spelling, but it is from that region of Africa, from, from Gabon and the other sort of west coast uh, Central African countries.
0: Can you talk about your graduate research and your focus on the stomach contents of snakes?
1: I mentioned earlier that I like uh, to learn their secrets, right? And so one of the basic things that we want to know about any wildlife that we study is what are they eating and if you've ever kept snakes or you know anything about snakes you know that they don't eat very often right they're really energetically efficient and so if you have one in your house you probably only feed it about once a week Uh, in the wild a lot of them only eat three or four times a year which sounds amazing that they can get by on on so little energy so when you're a snake biologist and you go out to study snakes uh, they're not very easy to catch because they're really good at hiding as well like the camouflage that we mentioned earlier. So when you do when you are lucky enough to catch one, chances are good that it doesn't have anything in its stomach and so you haven't got any information about what it's been eating lately. So what I did for my masters and and part of what I'm working on for my PhD here at at USU is I'm using this technique called stable isotopes to learn more about what snakes eat. And basically it works on the principle that you are what you eat chemically. You you literally take the food that you eat and you transform it through your metabolism into your own body. And there are chemical signatures that are different between the different types of food out there in the environment. So if I catch some mice and some frogs and some lizards and a couple of other prey items that I think might be likely prey for the snakes at my study site, I can look at their isotopic signature. Essentially, it's a their chemical signature and then I can take a tissue sample from the snake. I can take a scale clip or a blood sample and I can look at that tissue sample's isotopic signature and I can match it up with the type of prey that the snake's been eating. So it's kind of a sneaky way to get information about their diet without actually looking at their stomach contents because so frequently there aren't any.
0: Have you found many surprises?
1: Uh, I have actually. So for my master's I studied a species in Illinois called the western hognose snake and most people think that western hognose snakes eat a lot of amphibians and i think that's probably true i think they do eat a lot of amphibians in a lot of places but at my field site it turned out that they were mostly eating turtle eggs and i never would have guessed that beforehand once i was there at the site you know the few snakes that i did catch that had anything in their stomachs had eaten turtle eggs which was a surprise to me at the time but then when the isotopes came back it turned out that Pretty much all the adult hognose snakes at that site were eating almost nothing but turtle eggs. And that was a big surprise to me. And uh, I think it will be a big surprise to, to other snake biologists, certainly to anyone familiar with hognose snakes.
0: And what about their importance in the ecosystem? It seems all creatures are important in the ecosystem. But, for instance, one might argue raccoons are not because they're such a nuisance to many here in the state and are considered problematic
1: well, and, and some species are if they're if they're out of proportion to their natural abundance. You know, I mean, maybe raccoons are an issue because there used to be more wolves or more coyotes around that would eat them. So, um, and that's the theme of this blog carnival on Monday is is what are some ecosystem services of snakes, or what are they good for? What roles do they play in the ecosystem? And we know a little bit about this. We're learning a lot more, and I wish we knew more than we do. But one of the things they do is they regulate populations of their prey whatever they're eating so if they're eating mice they're probably exerting some kind of top-down influence on the mouse populations in that area they're keeping the mouse populations from growing what would be considered too large um you know and, and that has a lot of indirect effects as well for instance in the eastern united states deer mice are one of the primary hosts for the ticks that carry Lyme disease. So there's been some speculation that maybe timber rattlesnakes or copperheads or other venomous snakes in the east that eat a lot of deer mice are potentially playing a role in keeping Lyme disease in check or keeping it from being a bigger problem than it already is. So it's hard to know exactly because as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's difficult to study snakes because they're so secretive and so cryptic. Um, but that's Part of why I like to think that my research is important because we need to know these basic things about their interactions with other parts of the ecosystem in order to justify why they're important.
0: Where do they go in the winter time? Do they hibernate?
1: Yeah, it's it's a good question because uh, they're they're what we like to think of as cold-blooded, or, or a more scientific word for it is ectothermic. Basically, they their body temperature isn't stable so it can fluctuate with the environment they're the same temperature as the environment so like right now when it's 10 degrees outside uh they wouldn't do very well so um generally speaking what snakes do in the winter time is they go to what we call a hibernaculum so usually it's um a deep rock crevice or possibly um some old root channels from a tree someplace deep underground where the temperature is going to be relatively stable i mean it won't be warm although it might be warm relative to the surface of the ground but because they are ectothermic because they don't need very much energy they can ramp down their metabolism to the point where they don't need to eat anything they're not doing anything underground there they're not moving around and they sort of sleep basically they hibernate through uh, through the winter and then they emerge in the spring. And we're actually learning, starting to learn some fascinating things about their social lives because when they're entering and leaving the hibernacula are one of the only times of the year when all of the snakes of the same species in a particular population are there together in the same place at the same time. So, uh, for instance, up in Canada, that's when a lot of mating takes place. Um, right when they emerge in the spring. You might have seen photographs of these huge dens of garter snakes that come out from hibernation in May in, in like, Alberta. Um, and we we've also learned that when baby snakes are born they don't know how to get to a good hibernaculum. So what they do is they actually follow scent trails that are left by older snakes in the population. And they prefer to follow scent trails of adult snakes that they're more closely related to. So like, given a choice between their mom or their aunt, a baby rattlesnake is more likely to follow their mom. So the locations of their hibernacula are heritable. They pass down from generation to generation.
0: How much can you say about their den sizes in general? Do they vary in size among different species? I've heard rattlesnake dens can vary from just a few to uh, dozens of them.
1: They sure can, yeah. I, I think that in the past they were probably once much larger, particularly throughout lots of areas of the United States where lots of development has taken place. I mean, a lot of the big old trees that they used to hibernate in have been taken down for you know for some reason or another. But... Um, In some cases there are still thousands of snakes that hibernate at the same hibernacula and they could be of many different species so snakes of different species will share the same hibernacula particularly if it's an area where hibernation sites are are limited Uh, because if you pick up lousy hibernation site then your natural selection is going to be working against you if you die (laughs) over the winter that's probably one of the Main times that snakes do die, suffer mortality in the wild, is over winter when they're hibernating. If a really cold snap gets down there and they haven't chosen a good spot, they may actually freeze.
0: What they are learning from radio telemetry, where they put a radio transmitter inside a snake and follow it for a year, is that they don't typically stay near their den sites.
1: And they're, they typically spread out. They're not really territorial, but uh, they don't associate with each other very much either. So, depending on the density of snakes where you are, it's possible that there could be lots more uh, right in that area, or it's possible that there aren't very many. And what we're learning is that, you know, for your average, let's say, take a rattlesnake, for example, because those are some of the better studied ones, They'll, they'll leave the den and they'll go, you know, a couple hundred meters, and then they'll pick a good ambush spot, and they'll sit there for about a week. And if they catch something, they'll eat it, digest it, and then they'll move on to a different ambush spot. If they don't catch anything, they'll just move on. And so it's kind of these long periods of inactivity punctuated by these relatively long-distance movements, and eventually they'll start thinking about making their way back to the hibernaculum as fall comes. We have learned a little bit about differences in behavior between individuals in the same population, same species. So one thing that's really interesting is that... um, female snakes, when they reproduce, typically have very different behavior from male snakes and from female snakes that aren't reproducing, and that's predominantly because they actually don't eat the entire time that they're pregnant, and which sounds amazing. I mean, I, I've never been pregnant, but it sounds exhausting, and I, I can't imagine going through the whole thing without ever eating once, but the reason they don't eat is because uh, they don't have, they literally don't have room inside their body for a food item and all the babies that they're trying to produce at the same time. So typically, they'll just find the warmest spot that they can for basking, and they'll just bask there every single day, get those babies as warm as possible, and get them developed as quickly as possible so that they can give birth to them. Hopefully, the babies have an opportunity to find a meal before winter comes and at high latitudes and high altitudes like we have in northern utah what you often see is that female snakes particularly rattlesnakes will reproduce every other year so one year they won't eat at all they'll have uh, a litter of young the next year they won't reproduce they'll just eat throughout the year and build up uh, energy stores that they can use to reproduce with the following year and in some places they'll actually only reproduce every three years yeah it's really cool
0: back to your blog it. it Contain so much information. Can you talk about how much time it takes you?
1: You know, sometimes I think I spend too much time on it, but, um, you know, it usually takes me several hours to do the research for it and put together a post. And sometimes I'll write two or three at a time and then save them and, and release them later. Uh, but it's led to several really interesting interactions. I, I always got a lot of questions from people you know someone would find my email address online and send me a picture Well, what snake is this and, and i get a lot more of those now as a result of the blog but i actually was recently contacted by a novelist who is writing a murder mystery and she wanted a venomous snake to be the murder weapon and so she wanted me to consult for for accuracy on on snake behavior and and that kind of thing and so we've been negotiating over that recently which has been very interesting
0: don't forget to log on to the Blog Carnival this Monday.
1: The URL is uh, snakesarelong.blogspot.com
0: Andrew Durso leaves us with one of his favorite songs. And we congratulate him on his success. Sherry Quinn, Access Utah.
1: I may make you feel, that I can't make you think.
2: Yes,
3: The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at
1: usu.edu/hr.
4: In addition to the 25 million people in this country who have been diagnosed with diabetes or who have it but don't yet know that they do, an estimated 79 million people have entered the danger zone known as pre-diabetes. Their blood glucose levels are higher than normal but have not yet risen to the level at which they would indicate a diagnosis of diabetes. In people with pre-diabetes, the pancreas may not be working as efficiently as it once did, or the body may be gradually building a resistance to the insulin it produces, so that the hormone can't do as good a job of clearing glucose from the bloodstream. The good news is that type 2 diabetes is preventable. Diabetes prevention is as basic as eating more healthfully, becoming more physically active, and losing a few extra pounds, and it's never too late to start. This is Lisa for the Be Well Program at Utah State University. Be Well Utah.
1: Further programming on Utah Public Radio was made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3. Now introducing herbed cream cheese and egg breakfast croissant and daily soups made from scratch.
0: Welcome to Science Questions. This is Sherry Quinn. The producers at SQ Radio have been covering climate change since scientific data on its effects started trickling out over a decade ago. It is moving faster now, and the pace of stories coming out in an array of media sources about the cascading effects of the Earth's warming temperature has rapidly increased in recent years. In our continuing coverage of the issue, today on the program, we hear from two reporters who recently visited the front lines of climate change. PBS NEWSHOUR traveled to the Arctic this summer, where temperatures are warming twice as fast as any other place on the planet. They produced a three-part series in collaboration with the Pulitzer Center and the Seattle Times called Coping with Climate Change, Arctic Thaw. Melting sea ice is affecting the daily lives of the residents in the Pacific Northwest, Alaska and beyond. The PBS broadcast highlights the impact of ocean acidification, caused by carbon dioxide emissions on the fishing industry, the surge in marine traffic due to the melting ice that has opened up new waterways, and how the effects of climate change and increased oil and gas extraction are affecting traditional ways of life for Native Alaskans. PBS producers April Brown and Mike Fritz recently went there to report on how Native Alaskans are coping with climate change on
3: their subsistence lifestyle. For Brower and Jack, today is simply another day at the office. They are often in search of walrus, seals, and when the season is right twice a year, they go for the biggest prize of them all, bowhead whales. The marine mammal has been at the center of Inupiat culture for generations. All of their catch will later be shared with their family and friends.
1: I guess you could say it's a, a certain standing within your community. You provide for your community, you assist others with providing your community. It's like a job. You have a job and you need workers. Uh, well, you catch a walrus or a whale or a seal and they, they don't get paid with money. Uh, they get paid with with the shares from these animals. It's a great bounty.
3: It's part of a subsistence tradition that has been handed down over centuries and includes hunting land animals and birds as well.
5: This is our, our garden, our grocery store, you know. You can pretty much live off the land.
3: This lifestyle can be traced back to 400 A.D., when the first humans settled around present-day Barrow. But Michael Donovan worries that because of rising temperatures and melting sea ice, future generations may not be able to live this way.
5: Yeah, it's, it's definitely changing a lot, and it's kind of hard to say, you know, if our younger generations will be able to do what we do.
0: Barrow, Alaska. Located 330 miles north of the Arctic Circle is America's northernmost town. There are about 4,800 residents, and half are Inupia Eskimos. The sun never sets in the summer, and winter temperatures regularly go down to negative 30 degrees. There aren't any trees, and goods and services have to be shipped in by barge from Anchorage. So the cost of living is high, 278% higher than the average cost to live in the continental United States according to the PBS report. April and Mike started their trip from Seattle, trip where they in, talked to Seattle scientists and then boarded and a NOAA ship.
6: And getting on a NOAA ship, a ship that had gone up and done some charting of the seafloor in the Arctic, through the Bering Strait, up into the Chukchi and Beaufort Seas. Uh, then we went to Kodiak and got on another NOAA ship that actually ran us through the technology that they used to chart the seafloor which is is an interesting process. They took us out on a little launch and showed us how they basically kind of mow the ocean floor, mow the lawn with sonar, and we were able to see the outline of a shipwreck. So it really vividly brings that technology uh, to life. Uh, We spent a few days in Kodiak and then went up to Barrow for about four days, and, and you were asking about the challenges. One of the challenges in Alaska is you are beholden to the weather. There's a lot of fog. There's, especially in the winter, even more serious weather. And I know um, Mike and I got split up because we had a trouble with one of our airplanes. So there wasn't enough room on one plane. And he ended up trying to fly into Barrow and it was so foggy they couldn't land. And he had to turn around and fly back to Anchorage. So it's, uh, but you know, you run into that, I guess, anywhere there's weather involved. But people tell us that that's kind of normal and you have to expect it. And, just kind of go with the flow.
5: <laughs> I mean, we got on the flight from Anchorage, um, and then we circled Barrow probably four or five times, and then they just said, "Well, we can't, we can't see the runway, so we're we're heading back to Anchorage." And it was it was really interesting because a lot of the people on the plane, I I you know, especially coming from kind of an East Coast style of lifestyle, where everyone is you know upset if somebody doesn't make a right turn on time i mean everyone on the plane was just like oh it happens all the time you know and it was just totally they didn't even seem that upset by it which i thought was like amazing because it's a it's about a two two and a half hour flight from anchorage and you know we circle and then just go back and land at the same airport so you're up in the air for you know four four and a half hours and you didn't go anywhere so it's kind of it was it was pretty wild
0: how much footage did you gather and what were your work days like
5: I mean, we shot probably for about 10 to 12 days, I'd say. So I would imagine we have somewhere in the ballpark of, you know, 250 to 300 gigabytes worth of footage.
6: And the sun doesn't set up there, so you can start early in the morning and pretty much go... 24 hours if you were inclined but we usually ended at least up in Barrow around 11pm so they're really long days because you've got daylight all the time
5: I mean there's a golden hour there that lasts for about <laughs> 6 hours so it's really nice.
0: And how was the weather up there?
5: It wasn't too bad uh, actually now. It was probably in the 40s generally. Some days it even got up to about, you know, in the mid-50s I mean there was one day where we were like hey, this is really nice but you know in general, um I would say it was probably about 40, 45 degrees where you'd have to wear kind of a fleece and gloves. And then there was a couple days that there was one day where I went out seal hunting with some native Inupiat Eskimos. And, and it was pretty cold out on the on the Arctic Ocean. I mean, I was dressed as if I were going skiing or something. So it was definitely cold out there.
6: And we also shot in Kodiak and Anchorage, and they were experiencing a little bit of a warm spell. So it was, um, it was beautiful weather and sunny skies for the most part. I don't think we got barely a drop of rain on us.
5: Yeah, that was really nice.
0: What was the inspiration for, for this particular project?
6: The NewsHour has been doing a continuing series on climate change and uh, we were asked if we'd be willing to go up to Alaska and take a look at what was going on up there, uh, particularly with the Arctic sea ice. So just doing some general research um, and looking back at some of the pieces that we've done on ocean acidification elsewhere and um, the other issues that are going on up there, kind of thought it would be a good idea to look at some of the science uh, related to the expected increase shipping traffic and also how these kinds of things are affecting people up there. So the folks in Barrow really are on what some scientists have called you know, the front lines of climate change because the sea ice that they count on for so many things, for hunting, um, for the bringing in the food that feeds the whales and the walruses uh, that they actually hunt, the sea ice has retreated, and so some of their food sources are have retreated along with it and it's so expensive to live up there they have to have all of their goods, food for the most part shipped in so the cost of living is really expensive and i thought it'd be really interesting to see how these people have been particularly affected and uh, it was very interesting they were open to sharing how they are having a really hard time hunting bowhead whales which they have permission to do from the International Whaling Commission. They're allowed a certain amount every year. And the walruses and the seals that they also had have been slowly drifting away from the coast where they used to be able to get them.
0: How were you able to gain access and interviews within the community? What were the challenges?
6: Yeah, we were working really closely with uh, a group of um, folks who generally help scientists with their research. They use their local knowledge to make sure that they're safe and, and they can go about getting what they need um, you know, as efficiently as possible. Working and living up there is, is an entirely different world, especially in the wintertime when temperatures can get to 40 below. So uh, we were working closely with these Inupiates who help scientists, and, and they were also really willing to share their own personal stories
5: and they were they were more willing to once we had gotten up there and met them. Um, and April could talk more about this, but I know she was struggling to lock down some of the stories because I think there was some fear that, you know, they didn't know what we were going to report on. They didn't know how it was going to be portrayed. And there was also just, and it, that might have been one issue, and the other issue might have been that, you know, the cell phone connections there weren't ideal. And sometimes during the summer, People in Alaska would, you know, they would tell us constantly, like, well, we're just taking two weeks off to go caribou hunting and nobody knows where exactly. And, and then we'll see him, you know, see him back in a few weeks. And So that's, so that was definitely kind of an interesting dynamic of uh, reporting a story in the sense of we kind of went up there and we were like, well, hopefully this works out because we're a long way from Washington. So,
0: Mike was actually able to go along with them on a hunt on the ocean in search of seals.
5: The hunting experience was great, but no, we did not actually get any seals. And because the the water got a little bit choppy and the boat that we were in was, you know, fit only three people comfortably, so it was small, and, you know, they, I think they kind of decided that, Hey, this is definitely not safe um, to go any further because the wind started picking up. To be honest, it really wasn't much of a hunt. They checked their nets again, and they ended up getting some more fish. On the, uh, they kind of string out their nets along what's called point barrow, and that's the way that they fish is, is is they just kind of leave them there, and then and then fish actually swim into the net. So they were able to get when when we were with them they were able to get some salmon and some other fish, but. We actually never saw seals or a walrus or anything like that, even though the intention was to.
0: A strong sense of community has helped the Inupia preserve some of their traditions, April explains.
6: That's a very interesting tradition that they have. When uh, a whaling captain or whaling crew lands a whale, uh, they actually believe that the whales give themselves up to the hunters. That whale gets harvested and gets shared with the entire community. They have a, a big celebration, and everybody comes, and then they um, will distribute the whale meat uh, among themselves, the hunters, and then also to the community. So it's really a long-standing tradition of, of people helping each other. And I'm, I'm sad because they didn't actually land a whale during whaling season. They did get one just outside of, of their traditional whaling season. We were a little late to see that, but um, I hear the celebrations around it are quite lovely. <laughs>
0: From your own perspective, can you talk about their outlook on climate change and what is happening with the ocean and what they are seeing on the ground or on the ice?
6: You know, there are good things and bad things that have come from melting sea ice that have affected them. In one respect, it opens up areas for oil exploration and uh, the folks of the North Slope derive a lot of revenue from that. Uh, But at the same time, it's Making it much diffic- much more difficult to continue a lot of their traditions, the hunting. Um, they keep all of their their hunted food in ice cellars, which are basically large holes in the tundra and the permafrost. And as the permafrost warms up, their ice cellars are no longer able to keep that meat cold. And if they depend on that year-round to keep their food source their food fresh. You know, the, a lot of their meat, they tell us, has been rotting. So while they do get money from, from oil leases, a lot of their traditions are being made much more difficult. So in some respects, they just try to deal with it the best they can, but they, they want to make sure that, at least a lot of them that we met, that their children understand their ancestors and their heritage and that that's not completely lost.
0: How accepted is the oil industry there, and what about other industries moving in as a result of the melting ice?
5: Well, I think the oil industry is the one that obviously funds almost the entirety of the North Slope's governing budget. It's something like a $350 million governing budget, and pretty much um, taxes on the oil companies provide the entirety of that fiscal budget, and I think that most, I mean, at least the ones that we talked to, and this isn't by any stretch the whole community, um, but one guy that we talked to kind of was very resigned to the fact that, you know, they needed the industry and that without the industry, they wouldn't have schools, electricity, running water, and probably many employment options. So there's definitely, we found people who are afraid that, you know, their subsistence lifestyles could be changing dramatically in the future, I think a lot of people realize that, you know, at least in the short term, they need the industry.
0: How optimistic are they about the future of their environment, the people you talk to?
5: Well, I mean, I don't think anyone was necessarily pessimistic about it, I wouldn't say, but I will say that they were, I would say, worried. I mean, one guy that we talked to, Michael Donovan you know, kind of admitted that he was, he said, you know, it's scary and I'm not sure. And he's like, I don't know if our younger generations will be able to kind of do what we do. And he said at one point, too, that even if it was, even if he was given a million dollars or a hundred million dollars, I think is his quote, that he wouldn't, you know, trade this way of life for anything. So, I mean, even though there's kind of these opportunities along the North Slope because of the melting ice and things that have opened up. There are a lot of people out there that don't want them.
6: They're also trying to make their own opportunities. They've created their own corporation way back when they originally started uh, dealing with the oil companies. They got a large sum of money and decided to create their own native corporation, so one of which is spending shipping opportunities because, as I said before, they have to have so much of practically everything either shipped in or, or brought in by airplane, and so they wanted to take advantage of that since... The ice is retreating, and it's easier to get larger ships further north. Uh, And they're also trying to diversify into other areas. So it's not just, you know, the oil money comes in and gets dispersed. It's it's also they're trying to take advantage of other opportunities related to the fact that, you know, they're not locked in all the time by sea ice anymore.
0: Did you come away from the experience thinking the problems were worse than you thought? Or do you feel there is still time to make big changes?
6: Well, speaking to some of the scientists that do the research up there, we spoke to both scientists who study oceanography and and scientists who actually study sea life that's affected by ocean acidification. It seems like we don't have a lot of time to make significant changes uh, that will make things better. And I'm by no means a scientist, and we generally actually cover education for the most part. But it seems like this is something that we need to pay attention to.
5: Yeah, and one of the scientists that we talked to had a a good way of kind of breaking it down, I thought, for somebody that, that doesn't cover it. And the way that he described it just made a lot of sense in the sense of he said, you know, what we're seeing is temperatures are rising in the Arctic faster about twice as fast as any place on the planet. And, you know, it's like a glass of water with ice in it. And the water's not going to get warm until you get rid of the ice. And that's essentially what's happening right now in the Arctic. Sea ice, the volume of sea ice is down by about 40% of what it was in the 1970s and 1980s. That was fairly frightening, actually, to kind of hear that. Just put it that kind of way of like, wow, well, this is you know, even a few decades ago, there was so much more ice than there used to be out on that sea. And that that obviously has to have huge
6: ramifications.
0: What do you ultimately hope to convey to viewers and what message would you like them to take away?
6: I think that uh, Alaska is typically uh, not a place that a lot of journalists tend to go for stories. So I think that getting an opportunity to see how their lives are changing since they're on the front lines, as, as scientists have said, on global climate change, you really get a sense of of how it affects people and if it affects them now, it could certainly affect others more seriously down the road. And With respect to the work that the scientists are doing, I think that Uh, particularly with ocean acidification and its effect on uh, the marine food web, that affects us all outside of Alaska, even in the nearer term. Our oysters, our shellfish, uh, they are just not as plentiful as they used to be, and it's attributed to this process, ocean acidification, which is fed up, apparently, by melting sea ice. So I think just general awareness. Uh, certainly was one of the goals uh, and in being able to show people places and things that they wouldn't normally get to see
0: what were your moments of inspiration
6: for me it was just watching people hold these traditions so dearly and making a concerted effort to see that their children understand where they came from and why these things were important and that they carry on kind of what people do in general when they're faced with challenges uh you know, we we as people want our traditions to continue and and watching how hard they're struggling to do that against the face of mother nature was uh, it was I feel really fortunate that we were able to see that that they were willing to share
5: yeah i mean the people and the places that we were able to see i mean the the whole state is almost just impossibly beautiful i mean everywhere you turn is um, just kind of the most magnificent sunset you've ever seen, or the the great like the greatest view of the mountains with an ocean right there, and and that's one thing that we were really surprised by about Barrow is you know we had really no idea what it was even going to look like. Kind of, I mean, you know, some of the pictures you see online, it almost looks like the moon or something. But when you get up there, it's really really has a lot of natural beauty and the people there are just incredibly generous and like april was saying i mean it was just a delight to actually get to know them and let them tell their story
6: anybody who's interested in seeing these pieces can go to our website pbs.org slash news hour they will be uh on the climate change section and uh, i hope that uh, people learned something, because I know I certainly
0: did. That was April Brown and Mike Fritz, co-producers of a three-part series airing on the NewsHour broadcast on the unexpected consequences of climate change. Thank you for listening. Science Questions is produced by Sherry Quinn, Susie Montgomery, and Elaine Taylor.
5: I never had seal feel that I did have muck tucks which is um, basically a, a layer of, of whale skin. And, and that was out while I was out with the Inupiat's um, hunting. They offered me some while we were out. They said, oh, you got to try this, because they were having some. And, and I tried it. You know, it's not anything I would probably need to have anytime again real soon, but it, it, it was good. It tasted kind of like a, a beef jerky, a, a fish version of beef jerky, I would also say.
6: And then there's reindeer sausage, which oh, yeah, reindeer uh, is... Sausage. Yeah, yeah. Popular and on a lot of menus as well. It wasn't my favorite food, but it wasn't it wasn't bad.
5: That was pretty good, I thought.
2: Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn how the All-American Game of Baseball helped new immigrants adjust to life in Utah during the early 1900s. First this. The Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by the Utah Humanities Council with support from a We the People grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. During the early 1900s, the United States came into its own as an industrialized nation. Attracted by jobs and the chance to move up in society, immigrants left the old world for a chance in the new. They came from Italy, Greece, and Eastern Europe, from faraway places with foreign-sounding names. Lured west by headhunters and labor recruiters, many of them came to work in Utah's railroad and mining industries. As historian Philip Notoriani observes, Carbon County was Utah's Ellis Island. The U.S. Census of 1920 reflects the county's growing diversity, with Italians, Greeks, Japanese, and Mexicans all making homes there. Not unlike today, government leaders feared the influx of immigrants. In March 1919, the Utah legislature passed the Americanization Bill. The new law required immigrants to attend classes on how to be American. At the time, baseball seemed to characterize everything American, and nearly every town had a team. Carbon County was no different. The sport was one social outlet that allowed immigrants to retain their distinctive ethnic identities while living and working in a new country. By 1898, Price, Helper, and Castlegate created Carbon County's first baseball league. Games were played in Price on a vacant lot near the depot in First West. A strong rivalry formed among Price, Helper, and Castlegate. Sometimes the games took a dangerous turn. In a contest between Moreland and Castlegate, Gerald Wesley was hit in the head by a baseball. He insisted on staying in the game until he collapsed in the sixth inning. He died later that night, and his teammates remembered him by wearing black armbands. For Carbon County, as well as all the other Ellis Islands across the United States, Baseball helped new immigrants adapt to American culture without abandoning the old country. Research and writing for this episode of the Beehive Archive were provided by Rebecca Anderson. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank.
1: This is Utah Public Radio. KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1
6: 88.7 Moab, and KUSUFM HD191.5 Logan.